Our second reading uh, this morning comes from Acts chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 26 through 40. Uh, as Rosie pointed out, uh, the scripture readings are now uh, always in your in your bulletin for your reference. Hear the word of God. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. <clears throat> this is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all of the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we ask that you would send us your Holy Spirit this morning so that as we listen to your word, uh, we might catch its meaning. Um, I pray that your uh, word would stick in our hearts and change who it is that we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there is uh, some point in your schooling when someone probably said to you that there are no stupid questions. Now that kind of statement is meant to encourage you. It's not, however, exactly true. Or at least we can say that some questions are smarter than others. Some questions are more insightful. There have been times when I've been listening to an interview with an author and the questions posed by the interviewer are just so dumb that I'm embarrassed and I have to turn the dial. And then other times, maybe when I'm listening to Terry Gross, I think, wow, that's a good question. Sounds like she's actually read the book. Good questions reflect real understanding. Good questions get to the heart of the matter. And in this 
brief snippet of the exchange between Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, we see the eunuch asking the right question. His question is, about whom does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? The Ethiopian eunuch is a smart fellow. He's asking the right question. Who is the he mentioned again and again in Isaiah 53? Is the prophet talking about himself? Is he the suffering servant? Or is the prophet talking about someone else? And if he is talking about someone else, who is he talking about? If I counted rightly... The pronouns he, him, his show up 42 times in Isaiah 53. That's more than 10% of the words in that chapter. But who is he? Who is this mysterious he who is the focal point of this chapter? Now, honestly, this is a question that the scholars had asked for centuries before it was answered. We learned some things about the he... Uh, in Isaiah 53, we learn a lot about him actually. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. Whoever he is, we know that he's not beautiful. That he's not impressive looking. That he's not the kind of person who attracts attention by walking into a room. He was despised. He was rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. The world loves a winner. But this individual seems to have nothing but troubles. And so we think the worse of him. And when he comes walking by, we turn away. Because who wants the awkwardness of catching the eye of a loser? But then we hear something strange. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Well... It's one thing to suffer because you are a blunderer or a sad sack. It's one thing to be a man of constant sorrows because you are the one who keeps bringing trouble upon yourself. We've all met people like that. But it's quite another thing entirely if the suffering that you bear in your life is not for or because of yourself, but for or because of someone else. It's an entirely different situation. Built into the law of Moses is the idea of substitutionary atonement. Say that aloud for me. Substitutionary atonement. Atonement is reparation for expiation of sin. Atonement is a kind of payment or a kind of suffering that offsets the guilt of a sin. You snap at your wife in the morning and you bring home a dozen roses at dinner time. That's atonement. That's a payment for something you've done wrong. You've bungled a project at work and you spend the whole weekend of your own time putting things to right. That's atonement. 
That's payment for something you've done wrong. But substitutionary atonement is when someone else pays for our mistake or our guilt. We mess up, but someone else cleans up. In the Old Testament law, the sacrificial lamb gave up its life as a payment for our sin. The lamb is innocent. But the lamb dies to pay for our iniquity. In the Old Testament law, the scapegoat had the sins of the community placed upon its head and it's driven out of the camp into the wilderness. The goat is innocent, but the goat is exiled to pay for the sins of others. That is substitutionary atonement. The he of Isaiah 53 suffers carries the sorrows, is pierced, is crushed, is wounded, is chastised, not because he is guilty, but because we are guilty. So who is he? Who is this man of sorrows? That's what the Ethiopian eunuch wants to know. And he's asking the right question. This Ethiopian is an educated man. He's a trusted man. He works as a treasurer for the queen mother of Ethiopia. For people like Philip living in Jerusalem, Ethiopia is an exotic, far away, fabled destination. Parts of Africa that were beyond Ethiopia were simply unknown to people living in Jerusalem in Philip's time. Ethiopia was the end of the earth. You got there by traveling past Gaza and across the Sinai Desert and down into Egypt and to the Nile River. And then you would turn north and you would follow the Nile upstream up through Egypt and into the Sudan. And finally you make it to Ethiopia. The distance from the capital of Israel to the capital of Ethiopia is the same as the distance from Philadelphia to San Francisco. That's how far this man has come. He's a worshiper of God. He's come all of this way to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices in the temple. And now he's on his way home. He's in a chariot. Not a Ben-Hur chariot, but some kind of horse-drawn wagon. He's coming a great distance after all, and he's a rich man who would have had a number of servants with him. Maybe he's in something like a Conestoga wagon. And as he's traveling, someone else, of course, is handling the horses. He just is there for the ride. As he's traveling, he's reading aloud from the scroll of Isaiah. How do we know that he's reading aloud? Well, because everybody read aloud at that time. Reading silently is a modern invention. Around the year 400 A.D., St. Augustine in his book, The Confessions, mentions Bishop Ambrose sometimes reading silently. And everyone's amazed. How can he do this? It was a big enough deal that in 400 A.D., Augustine, an educated man, comments on someone reading silently. For most of recorded history, a book was like a phonograph record, and the reader was like a needle that was dropped onto the record. You didn't know what the book said until you heard it out loud. That's simply how reading was done. So the Ethiopian is reading aloud from Isaiah, and he passes Philip, 
who hears him reading, and the Holy Spirit prompts Philip to go over to the Ethiopian and to begin a discussion about Isaiah. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asks. The times that I have fallen into a religious conversation with strangers on an airplane have usually been prompted by something that they were reading or something that I was reading. I'm not one of those chatty people on an airplane. I'm quite content to sit there quietly and to enjoy my own thoughts. But when you're sitting side by side for a couple of hours, your eyes will catch what your neighbor is reading. And there have been times when a book has started a conversation, a conversation about eternal things. And honestly, if you're looking for an evangelism trick, carry a Bible around. That will do two things for you. One, carrying a Bible around will keep at bay people who would tempt you to sin. I mean, if you have a Bible lying on the seat between you and your neighbor who has perhaps unclean thoughts... Well, they're going to have to crawl over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to get to you. And that should slow things down a bit. But another thing that having a Bible or a Christian book will do is open the door to a conversation. If the person is thinking about eternal things or is interested in your faith or is curious. Notice that the Holy Spirit prompts Philip to pursue this conversation, Philip hears a snippet of Isaiah from a passing wagon and he takes off running to catch up with the person reading. There are times when the Holy Spirit will prompt you to open the door to a conversation with someone. Did that happen this past week? Now, the flesh is always warring against the Spirit, so it takes an act of obedience to respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. But if the Holy Spirit says to you, go talk to that person, well, you should do it. Because God is up to something. God has something in mind for you, for that person, for His own glory. And so after... Philip breaks the ice, the Ethiopian invites him into the wagon, and he asks him the important question, the penetrating question, the question that gets to the heart of Isaiah 53, about whom does the prophet say these things? About himself or about someone else? Now, we don't know how long Philip rode with the Ethiopian. We don't know how long their conversation was, at least an hour, I would imagine, maybe half a day. But Acts 8.35 reduces the whole conversation to just one sentence. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now it is possible to begin any place in the Bible and to find your way to the good news about Jesus. Because all of the Old Testament prepares the way for Jesus. Because all of the New Testament displays the glory of Jesus. The question that the Ethiopian eunuch asks is a question that scholars had asked through the centuries. 
Isaiah 53 was written 700 years before Jesus. It was written during the Babylonian exile. And the question, who is this man of sorrows, was not answered until Jesus. After you've met Jesus, after you have understood his life and his story and his death and his resurrection, there is no way that you cannot see that Isaiah 53 is about Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Many of us are familiar with this chapter. This morning wasn't the first time you heard Isaiah 53 read. Parts of Isaiah 53 are quoted 85 times in the New Testament. We typically read this passage uh, during the Advent season. For Christians, it's a very familiar piece of the uh, of the Old Testament. But among Jews... Curiously, among observant religious Jews, this passage from Isaiah 53 is actually not well known at all. And that's because Isaiah 53 has been omitted from the sequence of scripture readings used in the synagogue. So some churches uh, use what's called uh, the lectionary, which is a three-year sequence of readings, which takes you through most, but not all, of the Bible— the synagogue uses a similar sequence of readings, uh, like the lectionary, and that sequence uh, takes worshipers through the main parts of the Old Testament in the course of one year. But Isaiah 53 is not part of that sequence. The, the readings jump from the middle of Isaiah 52 right over to Isaiah 54, which is noteworthy. Here's what... Uh, the Jewish scholar Claude Montefiore writes about this. He writes, Because of the Christological interpretations given to the chapter by Christians, it is omitted from the series of prophetic lessons for the Deuteronomy Sabbaths. The omission is deliberate and striking. End quote. Just to be blunt, the correlation and the correspondences between Isaiah 53 and the life of Jesus are so impossible to overlook that the synagogues have chosen to slide this passage of Scripture out of their regular readings. So let's take a look at some of those correlations between Jesus and the man of sorrow in Isaiah. First, we hear that the man of sorrow uh, will come from humble origins... He would have no form of majesty, is how Isaiah puts it. Jesus, of course, grew up in Nazareth, a city that had a very uh, poor reputation. Not the city, by the way, where the Messiah was supposed to come from. Second, we learn that the man of sorrows will be rejected by men. He was despised and rejected by men, is what Isaiah says. On the cross... Jesus was mocked and blasphemed. He was reviled. He was even mocked and blasphemed and reviled by one of the other men who was up on a cross with him that day. Third, we learn that the man of sorrows would bear our sins and suffer in our place. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. With his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid upon him the the iniquity of all of us. He shall bear our iniquities. Is what Isaiah writes. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 
2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Fourth, we learn that the man of sorrows would remain silent during his oppression. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's what Isaiah says. And we know from the gospel accounts that when Jesus was put before Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Sanhedrin, he didn't say anything to defend himself. Fifth, According to the prophet Isaiah, writing 700 years before Jesus, the suffering servant would not remain dead, but would be exalted and would see his own offspring. He shall see his offspring. The Lord will prolong his days. The Lord, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. That's what Isaiah says. Now, that's an extraordinary prophecy for Someone that we're already told is going to suffer and die and be crushed. His days are going to be extended even though he's going to die. And yet that extraordinary prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus who comes back from the dead. He lives forever. He has seen his spiritual descendants number now into the billions. He is, of course, the personal fulfillment of the will of God. 700 years before Jesus... The prophet Isaiah described Jesus to a T. And then a few months after Jesus' ascension into heaven, an Ethiopian reading Isaiah meets Philip who shows him how the prophet was pointing to Jesus. A man that the Ethiopian had not met. And then the light goes on for him. And he asks to be baptized. In the song of the suffering servant, Isaiah 53 is one of the four songs of the suffering servant that we find in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, we have the gospel presented. It's actually one of the clearest presentations of the gospel in the whole Bible. And I say that because we need to be really clear about what the gospel is. A lot of people are confused about what the good news Uh, of Jesus Christ is the good news, the gospel is not merely God loves you. I mean, that's true, but that's not the gospel. The good news, the gospel is not that Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. I mean, that's true, but that's not the gospel. The good news, the gospel is not that Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, was raised from the dead three days later. That's true, but that's not the good news. That's just kind of curious information. The good news, the gospel, is this. That Jesus is the substitutionary atonement for your sins. The good news is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away your sins. That's the good news. All of the rest is just historical curiosity. You and I and the Ethiopian all know that we have a sin problem somewhere down in our guts. We realize that we haven't lived the way that God intends us to live. That we we know that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we know somehow that the wages of sin is death. And that's all bad news. But then we hear this good news... That this suffering servant has appeared who will bear our sins. 
The good news is that God's will was to crush his own sons for our iniquity. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. That's good news. For anyone who is conscious of their debt of guilt. If you've acquired a crushing debt, a debt that you cannot pay, how good is the news that someone else has paid it for you? Have you heard that news? Has it sunk into your consciousness? Do you have a sense of the horror of your own debt of sin in the sight of God? Are you aware that God chose to crush his own son so that you could be relieved of that debt? The Ethiopian hears and he receives the good news. It's surprising news. The Ethiopian hears the news and he learns that by faith in Jesus he might receive this substitutionary atonement for his own sins. He's traveled all of these miles. Is that months that it takes to get there? To Jerusalem to make sacrifices for his sins. And now he learns that God has opened a new way, a permanent way to be reconciled to the Father. By faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are covered and forgiven. And the Ethiopian jumps at the offer. Hey Philip, here's some water beside the road. What prevents me from being baptized? Have you jumped at the offer of the gospel? And if not, why wait? And if you have believed in Jesus but have not been baptized, what's preventing you? If you've not accepted Jesus as the atonement of your sins, then I encourage you to do that today. It's a free offer. And if you are already believing that Jesus is the atonement for your sins but have not obeyed his command to be baptized, and it is, by the way, a command to be baptized, then you should do that right away. We can baptize you right here. We can do it next week. There's no excuse for waiting. Jesus is the atonement for the sins of the church. And I invite you to hear and embrace that good news and to respond to it with your whole heart. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that it was your will that this suffering servant would be crushed on our behalf. We thank you that you have paid a debt that um, we couldn't pay. We thank you for your mercy that you've shown. We thank you for your willingness uh, to pursue us thank you for the faithfulness of Jesus to the command of his Father. And we thank you for his love for us. We pray this day that we might re- hear and receive and respond and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that in his name. Amen.